Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences, the campaigns they've won. Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences and their views on building a disability rights movement in the 21st century. For our fourth podcast, recorded on the 20th of May 2020, we are joined by Jackie Brown. So I was born with a disability. I would identify myself now as somebody who's known as what we call a thalidomide survivor, as opposed to a thalidomide victim. Um, so I grew up in a chi- with a childhood of what I would call a very medicalized model experience of disability. So my very early childhood really was comprised mostly of hospitalizations, many surgeries, many visits. I was a source of wonder to the medical community establishment. And that, when I look back on it now, and even much earlier, had quite a significant impact on me psychologically and otherwise. And it would certainly shaped my experience and lack of confidence as a very young child. I also experienced long periods of time away from my family, long term in hospital or residential settings. Um, and I think particularly for the younger cohort in the group of ILMI, living in Kerry back in the 60s, it took about seven hours to get from Kerry to Dublin on a train. So if you were in hospital, which I was many a time in a lot of orthopedic hospitals in particular, for many months and one or two occasions for nearly up to a year, it meant you really had no visitors and you were on your own on the flash of your back being turned every four hours or whatever. And it's only now, well, obviously a good few years ago, but the psychological impact of that I don't think was ever understood. Um, so I think that just uh, to carry that story forward, but in, on, if you flip that same coin, and I'm quite good in my little head of trying to flip a coin, that also shaped me, in, I believe, in many ways to become the person that I am, um, pro or otherwise, as you might think about it, it made me in another way highly independent, because I had to be independent, I was on my own. So you either fall asunder and go under, or you try your very best to rise above it. Um, and the other significant impact for me as a very young child, I would have said my education really suffered. My education was very haphazard. Um, I would now understand it as the education system failed me, rather than I failed the education system. Um, the way the design of services or the lack, total lack thereof. Obviously, we didn't have internet, technology, and all the other accessibility that we nowadays have. And I think just, it's really important that younger people, I know about that. And, and thank God we do have the access to technology, even when you consider it in times like this of lockdown, that we can all talk together in this space, for example, tonight on Zoom with all of you. So that's just a little passage history. And the other kind of thing I always identify, if you were to look at coming, making that transition from the medical model to the social model, is my other experience as a young child, young teenager, is a lot of my experience right through to vocational assessment, vocational training stuff. Everything was what I would call deficit space. So any assessments I ever had were all about the things I could not do. 
There was never a whole lot of assessment or very little assessment of what can you do or what could you do with um, an adaptation or support or um, a piece of equipment. So, so that would so an awful lot of my early childhood and teen experiences were very deficit orientated. So, I, I, and I talk about that in the sense of the professional education, be that um, occupational therapist, physiotherapist, the medical profession, the nursing profession, everything was kind of the poor creator model, as I call it. Some of us who lived or live in the country would be familiar with that pat on the head, the poor creator model. And, and I would have had, and I still do, funny enough, to this day, but mostly amongst older people, you know, people who still survived my parents to this day. Um, and they're very genuine, and I know they're very genuine. Say, aren't you great? I still get that sometimes today, you know. Um, I know it's meant very well, but it's very patronising. We obviously all know that and identify with that. So I grew up an awful lot with that medical model of being great and wonderful, you know, um, to surpass all these challenges in life. I spent a lot of my early years in wheelchairs, with crutches and braces on the plasma. So it was, it was all very medical as a model. Then went to school, tried boarding school, I loved it, but unfortunately, again, because of accessibility, ran into problems from an orthopedic point of view, the school was inaccessible, so I then had to leave the school. So again, another huge interruption to my education. Um, and then I went on, um, as you do, you know, I had the experience of some of us may remember the old NRB, the National Rehabilitation Board, where we would have all been assigned vocational officers. And again, I found that a hugely degrading experience uh, in terms of, again, the deficit assessment model um, and about pigeonholing me as a person and identifying what I should or could do with the rest of my life. I'd make a good little secretary. Um, hate his fucking typing, excuse the language. <laughs> Not my scene. <laughs> and, um, but sure. I did what my parents were advised that I should do for a bit and I rebelled and I think that was the start of my rebellion really. So um, the teens, the late teens I started rebelling but I still didn't identify, I hadn't clarity in my head around that so I, I succumbed to some extent but thankfully I got into banking. So I had a career in banking for 10 years and to be fair I enjoyed it and it was a great time for me in so many ways, with lots of friends, I really gained my independence, got driving, or had my car and, and then I got a transfer from Limerick at that time to Dublin and I became a night student in third level college, by the way having failed officially in my leaving search thanks to the education system, but I got in as a mature student and did it as five nights a week, my undergrad degree, and God knows how I did it, um, but I did. I couldn't do it today, I suppose it's age. But anyway, I did it, and my God, my eyes and ears were opened, and that was part of the change for me. Through that process and during that time in Dublin, I was still in the bank um, in Dublin, um, but I became more aware of there's there's an issue around this and who I am and about my where I am in society and you know not being incarcerated and other people being incarcerated the charity and I really always had a problem with this thing of rattling um 
charity boxes on street corners help the disabled or you know the collections for send send the handicapped in those days it was very much the handicapped you know with the language and I always always was uncomfortable with that because that was referring to me too but I still hadn't you know really come across much around the models if you like or the identity around disability issues and I was very fortunate to I started searching and looking and I became aware of this name Joan Antolin and I made it my business I met up with Joan Antolin, Maureen McGovern, Michael Fox um, a lot of names who might be forgotten today Steve Jaunt, uh, Dermot Hayes at various junctures all around the early 90s and we became a powerhouse and I got very involved then in the forum of people with disabilities. So I'm going to take a break there in case you want to, I don't want to bore the pants off people. Well this is fascinating and I can guarantee everyone's gripped as well, like it, 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 it's, it's precisely you know what you bring to it is that honesty but also I think the context for that as you say for for younger people and for non-disabled people passionate about rights and equality to see how things have evolved and changed over time it's really helpful to have that because often when you look at something and immediately now you say there's a problem now but if you have someone who can provide that context and say well things have changed in some respects and I definitely will come back to this you know, the concept of the deficit model and how it's linked to the, the medical model and what has or hasn't shifted in that inter intermediate time but when you talk about you know that awareness piece you know is that that kind of set of circumstances you're talking about meeting Donal you know meeting people like Steve and others in the forum is that the point where you're now your consciousness in some respect changes it now shifts in how you view yourself and how you view society and how it creates and disabled yeah, and we had huge discussions and loads of discussions and when i say argument healthy arguments you know uh, disagreement arguments but half of those arguments you're really when you i reflect on this anyway we're actually all of us individually and collectively as a collective teasing out our understanding of what we mean by whether it's um, a medical model. What do we mean by that? We hadn't even really got the language down to then, but we were very clear about a few things about rights. And I think Donald, to be fair to him, was a powerhouse in terms, he was like streets ahead of all of us. And he was quite challenging at times. Um, and I think that was great. And we had some great and wonderful debates around what was the forum about, what we were fighting for. And I think the other thing that really worked in the early days of the forum, we kept it very simple. Our objectives were simple. And like the very first campaign that we were really involved in was the right to vote for disabled people. And people, some younger people would not realize the importance of that. It's still an issue. Vivian Rath will tell you that, any of you that know Vivian, there are still issues, we have a, while we have a right to vote, there are still issues around exercising your right to vote, as opposed to not to having a right to vote. So there are still issues around some very basic, and that's a huge basic right for anyone, and people need to realise, we sometimes forget we live in a very, broadly speaking, wealthy, westernised democracy compared to some other parts of the world and sometimes people forget about the actual rights we do have as a population whether or not 
you talk about disability. Um, so that was a, a hugely successful campaign. And from there then got involved in a few other things. And my early days in terms of independent living were in the early days of what was then known as CIL, Martin Nocton, um, some of you on this call may remember a lady called Jana Overbro, um, and she was an American. And the very first, one of their very first campaigns, if not their first campaign, was called Operation Get Out. And I was involved in that campaign and supporting that campaign um, with what was then known CIL, which is now really, I suppose, in a way, become ILMI. Um, and that was another huge, like we really were challenging people, but particularly at government level and stuff like that. Um, and Operation Get Out, the idea of that was getting out of institutions. It was a great name, you know. And uh, and I remember we taking over hotel foyers, hotel events, the mansion house, government buildings, protesting outside the door. I mean, it was incredible. And and that's thanks to the leaders, the original leaders of the independent living movement in Ireland. And I'm much yeah, I'm very proud and honoured to have been involved in those very early days. And I funny, I was looking at my photograph album the other day and I was I was trying, but I'm not so clever. I would have loved to put up a couple of photos of the old days because I have. I mean, the other thing, it's another whole project. It's only throws out there. But I really think as an organisation of people, just not just LMI, but as disabled people in Ireland, we could actually mount an incredible visual, audio, historical history between all of us, if we were um, got someone together and um, put forward some kind of a historical museum of between newspaper articles, video recordings, I have all the inside out stuff, I have all the programs that Donald Tolan made. There's, there's just so much stuff there. I could I could talk for hours, but sorry now I don't want to I'm going off the point. Oh, no, no, you're not. You're not. I mean this again is, is fascinating the context. You know, you mentioned, you know, the, the success is about keeping it simple. I mean, obviously there's huge learning in that, but can I just bring you back to the voting thing? What was the reaction to, to that campaign? Firstly, for obviously there's a core group of disabled people who are, are active and are as you say challenge each other or consciousness is raised. What was the, the, the response from other disabled people? And what was the response from the statutory bodies to that campaign? The response was overall positive. There was a little bit of the passing in the head, oh, so you'll be all right, to an element. I think we certainly made uh, some, particularly in, in uh, today, the Department of Environment in those days would have been responsible for actually allowing or, you know, enabling people to exercise, any people, not just disabled people, to exercise the right to vote. So, so they would have been responsible for setting out the papers, the voting papers, appointing all the electoral offices and the polling stations around the country. I think we made them feel very uncomfortable, but they hadn't a clue how to deal with this. So, you know, postal voting, oh, that was the answer to all the panacea. So we give everyone a postal vote that needs a postal vote, and we get you all the way and back into your little boxes and quite out of here. But it, it wasn't quite that simple either, you know. And it's still not resolved today. So the reaction, I think we opened up a can of worms. Mm. Uh, and certainly there was, I, w I think it would be unfair to say there was pushback, but there was a huge lack of understanding. Mm. And, and you mentioned their Operation Get Out. But in, in terms of the forum, were, were there other pieces that need to be remembered in there and things, of, things that worked well? You know, that you mentioned 
obviously we're in a different set of circumstances now and the ability to connect disabled people from the length and breadth of the country using things like Zoom. When, when that technology wasn't there, how challenging was that for the forum and what things did you do that work well to connect people? I think, and bear in mind now, again, we're talking in the 90s when, um, you know, technology was in very early days. I mean, I remember in the old-fashioned days of technology uh, of the internet, I was thrilled. You would actually hear your phone dial jingling jingling trying to connect to an internet and um, you know if it, it was like real old fashioned you know you were nearly hand dialing and you'd be lucky and hope to christ that you'd be able to stay on uh, for a minister there's no such thing as graphics or anything you were typing only there's no such thing as seeing each other or sharing articles or photographs or anything um, it's none of that capacity and um, so you're under even pre-copper wire stuff so that was challenging but i think two things the forum did the forum was very good at connecting and building a membership albeit in those days a small membership but we really did build a grassroots membership and i think that's critical and i'll come to that later on when i talk about other examples that didn't work and mm-hmm. um, but and the forum set out an objective and bear in mind and and i think this is the other thing that i appreciate the forum for the forum set out an objective to secure the establishment of what we now know as the commission on the status of people with disabilities in ireland and a report from that commission the forum went about that project extremely well incredibly focused including meetings with like the president of ireland who at that time mary robinson and i think there are two we had you know i'll I'll talk about as well if you want i think we need to develop champions not only within our own movement but outside of our movement because we have an awful lot more people and allies in our who support in our us in our endeavors i think sometimes we get caught up in oh no it's nothing about us without us and no one else is allowed to you know nearly support us so i think sometimes we lose out by not taking on board and president mary robinson was a wonderful champion for disabled people and their rights and another person that was and he he never he wasn't there very long which i think is a testament to the man actually in terms of his um credibility was um Mervyn Taylor, the TD, he was Labour TD, voted in that time, and Dick Spring was also the Thorniston. And Mervyn Taylor was one of the most, probably the most honourable politician I ever met or worked with in all my years. Um, he was very genuine. He was, he was appointed to a very new position, i.e. a new department called the Department of Justice, Equality and Law Reform. And he did tremendous work, including around helping and working with the forum. We met with him several times and through him, we got and secured the establishment of the Commission on the Status of People with Disabilities. It's a a pivotal moment in terms of establishing. Do do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the kind of genesis there and and what was in it? Because I know if Dermot Hayes is online today, he'd be be immediately grilling about what it would be like if the Commission report was was realised in its full. But... um, I might get someone to ask that question in his absence, but if you give people again that context, because it is a huge document. It was massive. I mean, even just to get the commission itself secured was huge. Uh, so for any of our younger members, at that point in time in Ireland, there had never been any kind of inquiry, commission, 
national overview conversation around the rights of people with disabilities. And then I'm talking particularly about looking at what are the gaps, issues, and rights of people with disabilities in Ireland. So this was the first time in Ireland, in my view, that we had any kind of a report looking at the rights of people with disabilities, or sorry, committee to look at the rights of people with disabilities. And that was established in October 1993. And that commission was originally um, referenced and terms of reference, I was a member of the commission and we were originally given such terms of reference and to sit for two years. But as we went through our work, I can go through the process of the work, and that was, it became evident reasonably quickly after one year that it was going to take way more than two years. So the commission went back to the minister seeking a bit more time. So we were given another year to report with our document, which became known as the Strategy for Equality. And the Strategy for Equality sets out, and it's still there, 402 recommendations. Obviously, some of the recommendations are now superseded by legislation, progression in time, and things like that. So obviously, it would be unfair and not necessarily appropriate to go back to every single one of the 402 recommendations um, with a view to was that done, was that done, because some things have been done, some things are maybe time has moved on or legislation has superseded the issue, but there are still themes, I would say to people, there are themes that commission report that might be worth reflecting on and looking at and that's maybe something we might look at when we come to talking about a shadow report around the UN CRPD. In terms of the process and as you said like I mean that was an exciting time around broadly speaking human rights and equality because there was a you know, similarly other task forces formed and leading to first kind of formation of the Employment Equality Act and later on from that you know very exciting formative time for a lot of rights-based approaches. Was that momentum maintained, do you feel, from your perspective? Or was, was there, there obviously were opportunities grasped, were there opportunities lost? I think the momentum was hugely sustained and developed further in what I would call the wider society of the NGO sector, the social society sector and things like that. I think the government department and Ireland Inc, official, official Ireland Inc, um, like staying in their boxes this is long before things like, I think sometimes people, we, we get so tidied up in our little boxes and we only think disability. I think this is long before things like FOI, Freedom of Information. Um, so it was very hard to get information out of government department about any issue, including disability issues. Um, so I think we made huge progress and I think it was sustained to a large extent with other allies like other human rights interests, other NGO sectors and um, other like-minded groups, even be it about different kinds of issues. Um, but I think official Ireland, we made on paper official progress, but practical progress, um, slow. But I do think it brought about initiated what I would call the easier, inverted commas, the easier things from they they were able to cope with what i would call tactile or changes like okay we look at the building regulations part 10 so but that's great we can get stuck in that we can send engineers out to upgrade our building regulations so we got things like that improved but getting the more nebulous hidden softer but really important social issues dealt with much harder and i think we we've made progress we certainly have made progress but i think we've a, a bit to go still and, and kind of linked with that you know you, you had 
you know, you, you mentioned mental history and experience. You, know, you mentioned the forum, you mentioned at the very start, PWDI. Is there a pathway from those organisations that you feel, again, momentum was maintained and, and structures were built and, and grown? I'm disappointed to say no. I am, I, I'm being very honest. That's my own personal view. Others might choose to disagree with me. The forum chose, and in my view, rightly so, chose after a couple of years of the um, publication of a strategy for equality, which is the reports from the Commission Staff to People. The forum chose, for various reasons, it was time to close down. We had achieved our mission. Um, and at that point in time, I might add, um, the official at the early day, there had been an attempt, I, I think it's important just from a historical point of view, people understand here, so that we learn from mistakes. The Irish government decided, yeah, we need a national organisation of disabled people. So being foisted on us as opposed to grassroots based, we were pretty much presented with the Irish Council of People Disabilities. And it was, I would call, the model was always wrong from the start. Uh, because it was top-down approach. So we were given like a, a, what you would kind of in effect call a CEO. Uh, we were given an official who was an employee of the Department of Justice as in acting for the uh, want of a better phrase, a CEO. And from there at the model wide, we were going to have a county network of which I participated in, in Kerry, trying to establish a county network, but everything was top down. So it, it still had huge kind of information. You couldn't move left nor right nor have an opinion without getting some kind of imprimatur or whatever from the Department of Justice. So it never, it never really took off. And then of course, in infighting and factions developed and sometimes we as disabled people and i mean that in the global sense we are our own worst enemies because when something doesn't work in your favor in the way you think then you start fighting and disagree and all that sort of thing and and i think sometimes that's an awful shame so that model fe fell and failed and of course with that model i might add at that time there was over half a million being given into this office um and it was all lost and taken back, obviously, you know, and, and didn't uh, follow through. Later on, then, the model of uh, people with disabilities in Ireland, which was, to be fair, more of a genuine effort to develop a grassroots type of an organisation. But again, it was still controlled, very much controlled, by a government department. And I don't think there was enough groundwork allowed to develop, to flourish, um, and it, it was a very particular model and um, so and again in faction fighting and unfortunately and um, various court cases etc etc ensued after that and of course that's ate up any money and do you know what it was very easy and we were our own when and i say this globally we as a um, uh, sector we were our own worst enemies because any monies that were there for us were eaten up by um settlements our court proceedings. Just an interesting one that just struck me, and you say that very top-down model, you know, that the department controlling it, you know, and, and I know you have a huge amount of experience and, and might be worth touching on it, like from, as you say, from other sectors in civil society, it, it's very strange, you know, you have, say, around women and girls' rights, around travel rights, around migrant rights, while the state might provide funding 
there's a, a tacit assumption that they have no control or say or authority. So it, it's a very unique situation that you would have with PWDI that a department would remain that much, you know, retain that much control. Why do you think you have just for disabled people as opposed to all the other sectors were given and, and notwithstanding the to and fro of people getting their wings clipped every now and then for stepping out of line but there was a, an assumption autonomy for the sector if you go back to the 1995 the uh, white paper for civil and community and voluntary sector that autonomy been vital but yet denied to disabled people why why that I, i'm not sure you, you might have answered, but maybe you well I, I don't, you know, there's no right and wrong. And my opinion on that, um, is, and it's a very valid question, I think it's a fair question, is I think it goes back to there wasn't a clarity around ourselves. There wasn't enough of a grassroots organisation. Sometimes you were bringing people together who never met in their lives. They had no idea who you were talking to from County Galway, County Monaghan, Kerry. And so... I just think literally people hadn't had that time themselves to develop their own grassroots. So this model was being imposed on people and asking people to work together without really ever having, whereas I think you make reference to, say, for example, women's groups, travellers groups and things like that. A load of those groups grew from the bottom up. We did not grow from the bottom up. That's my point. Mm, no, no, I think it's fascinating. It really is because when you say there's always good things to take from the past, not only the things that worked, but where things haven't worked, I think is equally important to reflect on those as we're moving forward. Because, you know, if it's something that's imposed on, I, I agree, I can't see how it would work. Jackie, how are you for time? Are you okay to take one more uh, question maybe from me? You know, because it nicely kind of segues into um, a question of like, I mean, we're talking about the disability rights movement in Ireland now, and you've mentioned maybe the shadow report process. What do you think needs to happen? What do you think are the challenges now for... Uh, building that kind of a sense of DPOs and a movement based on equality and human rights. What are those challenges? And based on all of the fascinating stuff you've brought in there, what, what in your perspective needs to happen to meet those challenges? I think we need to stay focused. And if we're talking specifically about a shadow report, I, I think it's really important and I'd love to see a real national organisation of disabled people, but with clarity and focus. And I think there's some really good real what i call real gpos out there and i think that we should never um take away from the individual work and efforts of all those individual gpos but i think we also need to create an opportunity for those gpos to come together for pieces of work that are common um to all, all of us and the shadow report i think is one such example and i think the first thing i would say is it's really important if we are asking DPOs to come together, they stay focused on the task. And that we don't get into, you know, my backyard space, as I call it, you know, not in my backyard, not in your backyard or ownership. If we genuinely care about the rights of disabled people, not just my rights, but about the rights for everyone, including those amongst us who are most, to use that word that I absolutely hate, vulnerable, those most at risk, of being left behind i would nearly prefer to use that kind of phrase we have to include everyone so i think if we stay focused with that in our minds that we are doing this for everyone people we have never known will never know but this is about not only ourselves but about the future and the generations to come ahead of us so and it's also about there's a task in hand if you're talking about the shadow report 
it's very simple and I'm I'm terrible, but this is the reality of it. We have one opportunity, it's our first opportunity in Ireland, and we can really make a great shake of this opportunity. But I would absolutely emphasize there are only 10,700 words allowed in this report. We cannot have long-winded reams of rubbish. We have to be focused on what we say as a DPO of, from Ireland if we want the UN Committee on the Rights of People with Disabilities to A, listen to us, to respond to it, and most of all, the whole objective of our exercise is to tackle the Irish government and what we might say in that shadow report. Just in terms of, obviously, the idea for a DPO-led shadow report is vital, but even going back to your suggestion around not having that grassroots space, is that, in your perspective, aside from the shadow report, is that the bit that we really need to work on or people need to work on about building that kind of shared grassroots understanding? And if so, is there a model that we all need to operate out of? Are there specific values we need to share? Again, from your perspective, we're not saying that you have all the answers, but again, from your perspective. I am, okay, I, am, I think a grassroots is obviously the ideal. And I think some of the GPOs already have quite a good grassroots or active membership, um, albeit in specific areas. And that's absolutely fine. I've no, personally, I've no issue with that. Um, and I, but what I would say around any kind of coalition or national grouping. I don't think we have the capacity in this country nor the funding for any one group or organisation to genuinely be grassroots of the whole nation of disabled people. You know, there's 13.5% of the population, nearly 700,000 people with disabilities. It's an absolute lie to pretend that any one of us can genuinely say we can develop a grassroots organisation out them. It's not going to happen. But I think the the way this country operates, we're probably better off to look to any number of genuine DPOs, disabled people's organisations as opposed to providers, and that's a whole other debate, um, to look to them to do their best effort to develop a grassroots organisation around the issues of concern, uh, etc to that organisation. And then that maybe the best way to go forward is to look at how can these organisations come to work on issues of common concern across all the agencies or organisations. Sorry, I forgot to come in. Obviously, everything gets caught in jargon and, and terms and acronyms. Yeah, of so, course. Uh, so NGO been a non-government organisation. Yeah, I know, I, I, know I'm, I should have come in. And, and DPO been a disabled persons organisation. Jackie, just very quickly, you might give a good definition because I know you're involved in conversations around broadly what a DPO is and how that differs maybe as you say I know it's a separate conversation and we don't want to get two hours into a conversation with the difference between a DPO and a service provider but as briefly as possible there for someone who's new to that kind of concept. Okay I suppose for me a DPO is an organization which is a disabled persons organization it is guided directed and led by disabled people okay so all actions strategies opinions um, etc. are guided and led so the majority, the vast majority of people leading that organisation and the expressions from that organisation are disabled people themselves. That is not to say they do, do, not, do not or may not need the support of people who may not have a disability. So I, I sometimes I think there's a complete mix-up between those two things but for me the tenant of a DPO is it must be controlled, led, guided, directly by disabled 
people. For me, a service provider, as opposed to um, a GPO. So we have a lot of disabled organisations, uh, sorry, disability organisations that claim to represent us. No problem. Off you go, you can represent us all you like. But in my head, a service provider is an agency or an organisation that is providing services to or for disabled people. Yes, they may go ahead and uh, represent the opinions, what they believe to be the opinions of disabled people, but they're representing them based on the delivery of their service, not necessarily the wishes, dreams or desires or the future aspirations of the their service users, clients, whatever. Whereas disabled people's organisations, we're not clients, we are the organisation. And that brings us to the end of podcast four in conversations about activism and change. Make sure to listen to our other podcasts by visiting www.ilmi.ie to find out more about our work. Sign up for our e-bulletin by emailing info at ilmi.ie or follow us on Twitter at ILM Ireland or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ILM Ireland.